Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. When Stott speaks, he has a voice that is friendly, courteous, and natural. It is humble and self-critical, but also confident, joyful, and optimistic. Stott's mission is to pierce through all the encrustation and share direct contact with Jesus. Today, John Stott's Christmas sermon is titled, The King Who is Shepherd. The visit of the Magi to Bethlehem and the humble homage which they paid to Jesus Christ is surely one of the most picturesque episodes in the whole Christmas story. It's pure theatre, exotic orientals in exotic clothing bring exotic gifts to the infant Christ. And yet, as I think most of us will know, the story has suffered by being so popular. It's become sentimentalized, and it has been embellished by a number of accretions, which are not to be found in the text of Matthew. For example, there is no evidence in Matthew's account that the Magi were kings, We three kings of Orient are. No, we're not told they were kings. They were magi, they were wise men, they were in search of a king, but were not kings themselves. And then again, there is no evidence in Matthew's account that there were only three of them. We're not told how many there were. What we are told is that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And people have jumped from the three gifts to the three givers but we're not told how many there were. Again, as another example, there is no evidence in Matthew's account that they came to the stable. On the contrary, Matthew says that they came into the house where they were, because evidently by now they'd moved out of the stable into a house. And there's no evidence that Jesus was still a baby. Matthew calls him now a child, And King Herod gave orders that all baby boys under two should be killed. So by that time, Jesus was a bit older. Now, I only mention those things not to upset us in any way, but because here at All Souls, we have a very high view of the Bible. We believe in the inspiration and in the authority of the Bible. And therefore, it's very important to make sure what the Bible does say, as opposed to what we might think it says. And uh, we need to be careful in this matter. Now, I wonder if we're all clear that that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not really historians, although what they uh, write is history. They're not really biographers. They are evangelists and theologians. They have a message that they want to convey. So I want to ask now, what did Matthew, or why did Matthew include this story in his gospel. And what did he want us to learn from the story? Well, I want to suggest this as the first thing. The first thing we learn is that no trouble is too great to seek for Jesus Christ. Whatever that star was, and many ingenious attempts have been made to explain it, 
may have been a a conjunction of the planets Saturn and Jupiter. Others think it was a comet, maybe even Halley's comet. And others said it was a nova that flares brightly and then dies down. But whatever it was, these astrologers, these magi from the east, were convinced that a great king had been born. They learned later from the scriptures that the king was also a shepherd, which is where the title for the sermon tonight comes from. But anyway, they were convinced that a great king was born, and it was rather similar some years later, in AD 66, that another group of wise men visited the emperor Nero. Astrology was incredibly popular in those days, and the Magi were evidently well-versed in astrology. But the point is this, that whatever the star was, nothing could stop these wise men in their determination to find the king who had been born. They probably came from Mesopotamia, in other words, what we today call Iran and Iraq, and would that there were many in those two countries who were seeking uh, for the king today. Anyway, in this case, if they came from Mesopotamia, they will have traveled about 500 miles, and their journey will have taken them several weeks. They left behind them the security of their uh, home and family, and although they probably skirted the desert, they risked attack from wild beasts and from bandits. They endured the discomfort of heat by day and cold by night, and nothing would deter them from their goal. Their search in God's goodness was rewarded. Now, in contrast to those magi, our own exertions in pursuit of the truth seem feeble indeed. Most of us who've gathered here tonight, I guess, are very familiar with the Christmas story. We know, too, about the fantastic Christian claim that God actually became a human being when Augustus was emperor of Rome, and that God personally visited planet Earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the claim. So I wonder, what have we done about it? Are there those who are with us tonight who have taken steps to verify these amazing claims? Because the truth is that most people don't bother to verify them. We discuss uh, these, uh, what is claimed without ever having investigated it. And we dismiss it without investigations. I know some educated people, or maybe one should say otherwise educated people, who have rejected Christianity without ever reading, since they were kids at school, the foundation documents of Christianity, that is, the New Testament. But how can you dismiss these things without investigation? Is it honest? Is it compatible with intellectual integrity? Let me remind you that in the Sermon on the Mount which many people seem to think they can accept, Jesus made a beautiful promise. He said, seek and you will find. 
Echoing probably another verse in the Old Testament in which God said, you will seek me and you will find me if you will search for me with all your heart. So I wonder if there is somebody here who has never come to know Jesus Christ. You haven't come to know him in a personal way. And I wonder if the reason is that you've never sought him. The Magi put us to shame. No trouble was too great for them in their search for the king, and no trouble should be too great for us. And again, I mention what Richard Buys mentioned just now about Christianity explored as an excellent way to seek and to seek to verify some of these things and make your search sincere and serious. So that's the first thing. No trouble is too great to seek Jesus Christ. Now here is the second lesson we learn. No people is too alien to find him. Of course the Magi were foreigners. That's uh, one of the main purposes of this story. Originally they were a Median tribe mentioned by the well-known historian uh, Herodotus. And when the Persians conquered the land of the Medes, they retained their distinct identity. As I've already said, they were astrologer priests, and uh, Zoroaster was probably one of them. Anyway, they were fascinated by the stars in the night sky, by those that seemed to be stable, and by those that were moving. And they were very interested in the elements So they experimented with them, especially with fire, keeping it burning in their temples both day and night. The Greeks came to call them magi, wise men, and so the word magic was born. And yet in spite of these racial and cultural alienations, they still came to seek the infant king and do homage to him. Indeed, as you may have thought, the two groups, the shepherds and the wise men who came to worship Jesus, could not have been more different from one another. Racially, the shepherds were Jews and the Magi Gentiles. Intellectually, the shepherds were simple and untutored, having had no more education probably uh, than the uh, synagogue, their local synagogue school, while the Magi were scholars well versed in the wisdom of the day. Then, socially, shepherds belonged to what we call the world's have nots, but the Magi, if you can judge from the lavish gifts that they brought, were wealthy. Yet, despite these barriers, racial, intellectual and social, which normally separate human beings from one another, they were united in their worship of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Magi were forerunners of millions and millions of other Gentiles, including probably ourselves, who have fallen down and worshipped Jesus. Well, it's highly significant that this story was recorded by Matthew, and it's only to be found in Matthew's Gospel, because Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. 
that although he is, his gospel is the most Jewish, he has these wonderful flashes of insight into the call of the Gentiles to worship Christ. So Matthew's gospel begins with this visit of the Magi as representatives of the, of the Gentile world. It ends, as Chris Wright mentioned this morning, with uh, the commission of the resurrected Lord Jesus, who sent his disciples into the world to make disciples of all nations. And the universal commission is recorded by Matthew. And then in the middle of the gospel comes that great promise from Jesus that... People will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. So Matthew was convinced that Jesus was not only the king of the Jews, the Messiah, he was the saviour and the Lord of the whole world. Now as pluralism spreads throughout the world today, And pluralism is an ideology that asserts that all religions have equal validity. As this idea spreads through the world today, we need to remember that all non-Christian religions are ethnic religions. That is to say they are limited to a particular people in a particular culture. Hinduism, for example, is almost entirely uh, restricted to Indian people, Buddhism to people in other parts of Asia, Confucianism to the Chinese culture, Shintoism to the Japanese culture, Judaism is almost entirely restricted to Jews, and Islam to people of Arabic descent or to those conquered by Islam at the point of the sword. And only Christianity among all the religions of the world is not an ethnic religion. It's not limited to any particular people or any particular culture. It is a world faith. It's certainly not a Western religion. Jesus, as I hope all of us are clear, was certainly not a white man. And being Semitic in origin, he was probably quite dark in his complexion. In fact, it's not an accident that Jesus was born in Palestine because Palestine is contiguous to three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. I myself am greatly privileged in my travels to have experienced something of this cultural diversity of the Christian faith. And I've joined in the worship of Jesus with people of all manner of different cultures. For example, with African students in the chapel of their university campus in Uganda. Or I've joined with the Inuit or Eskimos uh, in the tundra of the Canadian Arctic. I've worshipped with thousands of Korean Christians in their extraordinary mega churches. I've worshipped with South Americans who worship Jesus with the exuberance of their Latin temperament and with the guitars which the Spanish conquistadores brought with them from Spain. I've worshipped, as you have too, with fellow Europeans, now in the great medieval cathedrals, and now in house churches, in a home, a storefront, 
or maybe a cinema. This, friends, is the universal appeal of Jesus Christ, irrespective of all ethnicity. It is this that brought shepherds from their fields and the Magi from the east. It is this that still acts like a magnet. It attracts people of all cultures. It fulfills the promise of Jesus, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. It is one of the most convincing evidences that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So no trouble is too great to seek him. No people is too alien to find him. He belongs to us all. And then thirdly, no offering is too precious to give him. Verse 11, the Magi opened their treasures. They presented to Jesus their gifts and uh, gold, incense, and myrrh. Gold is a precious metal and incense and myrrh as precious spices. But in contrast to their gifts, our gifts seem paltry indeed. I'm glad we sang just now, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I could bring and would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would play my part. But what I can, I give him, give my heart. And that's what God wants, the worship of our hearts. Not that we remember him once a year at Christmas tide. Not that we remember him once a week on Sundays and then forget him during the rest of the, t- of the time. But rather that we serve him with our whole heart, at home and at work, in public life and in the secret places of the heart, withholding nothing from him but giving him our very selves. I remember some years ago I was teaching a children's church and had taken them during the year through uh, St. John's Gospel. When we came to the end of the year, because they were very bright children, I set them a little written examination. And after asking them about uh, 30 quasi-intellectual questions, I asked them a final personal one. And it went like this. This was my first, last question. It was based on uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus. Who have you brought to Jesus? One little girl who was only 10 years old replied, I've brought myself to Jesus. <laughs> and she was quite right. She couldn't bring anybody else until she'd brought herself. And to move from a child of 10 to an Archbishop of Canterbury, I love these words of William Temple. He said it is futile saying to people, go to the cross. We've got to be able to say, come to the cross. And there are only two voices that can issue that invitation. One is the voice of the sinless Redeemer with which we cannot speak. And the other is the voice of the forgiven sinner who knows himself forgiven. And that is our part. You see, in the end, there are only two possible responses to Jesus Christ, which were beautifully epitomized in the contrasting figures of Herod the Great and the Magi. Herod was determined to destroy Jesus, while the Magi 
were even more determined to worship him. So Herod's reaction to Jesus was fully in keeping with his own known character. Herod's long reign was stained with blood. It was the Romans who put him on the throne. It was the Romans who called him king of the Jews. But he wasn't king of the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew himself. On the contrary, he was a foreigner. Herod the Great, his father had been an Edomite and his mother an Arabian princess. So he had no right to the throne and no right to the title king of the Jews. In consequence, his throne was very insecure. He lived in abject terror of all rivals. And when he saw rivals appearing, he had them promptly liquidated. He killed his own wife, Mariamne, because he feared her. He killed his mother, Alexandra. He killed his three sons, Aristobulus, Alexander, and Antipater. And he killed more than half the members of the Sanhedrin, the leading Jewish council, and sundry other uncles and cousins and relatives fell to his jealous rivalry. So it's not surprising that Josephus, the well-known Jewish uh, historian, called Herod the Great a pitiless monster. And the Emperor Augustus once declared that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Now in our language, Herod the king had a serious paranoia. And now the Magi had come to Jerusalem and were asking, where is the king of the Jews? The question filled Herod with alarm. King of the Jews? He said to himself, but I'm king of the Jews. Who is this that is presuming to rival me? Well, in principle, the same situation obtains today. There are many, many people, and there may be some here tonight, who perceive Jesus as a rival, a threat, a nuisance, or an embarrassment. A threat to our own autonomy, because we want to live our own life, thank you very much, without interference from anybody else. It reminds me of Lord Melbourne, Uh, who was a well-known friend of Queen Victoria and uh, was uh, also at one time Prime Minister of Great Britain. And you may know that he once said that things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade a man's private life. And that is exactly what it does. It's exactly what Jesus Christ does. It's why C.S. Lewis called him a transcendental interferer who comes from the transcendental world and interferes in my private life. So there are many of us who regard him as a rival, a nuisance, an embarrassment, and we want to get rid of him. I, some years ago, was leading a mission in a Canadian university, and I was trying to explain the way of salvation and forgiveness to a young Don, a young uh, lecturer. And I was saying to him that If he were to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he would have to put Jesus at the center of his life and he'd have to move off uh, himself onto the circumference. To which he immediately replied, gee, I guess I'm very reluctant for that decentralization. (laughs) 
And decentralization is an excellent word for conversion. To be converted, to accept Jesus Christ is to be decentralized, to put him at the center and to move off into the circumference. So, as I conclude, we are faced with an alternative. And there is no possibility of compromise. Either we see Jesus as a threat and are determined like Herod to get rid of him and to destroy him, or we see him as who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords, and are determined like the Magi to worship him. I want to beg you to give up your resistance to Jesus Christ. I want to beg you to turn from your rebellion against Jesus Christ. I want to urge you to come and to kneel beside those Magi and bring Jesus the homage of your heart. And if you're not ready to do it yet tonight, I want to urge you again to remember about Christianity Explored. You can either get one of those yellow cards or at the very end of the service paper tonight is a little form that says if you would like to know more about Christianity Explored course, please complete this form and post it in one of the red boxes and someone will get in touch with you. So sooner or later, I pray that everybody here will come with the wise men and bring him, bring Jesus Christ, the homage of our hearts. Let us pray. We reflect for a moment in silence at the alternative that is before us. Either to perceive Jesus as a threat and seek to destroy him or to perceive him as the king of kings and worship him. We desire to thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for those magi, those wise men, for the trouble they took in seeking you, for the presence they offered you when they'd found you. And we want to pray that we may be numbered among those who imitate their fine example. Help us to take trouble to find you. And grant that when we do, we may give to you the homage that you deserve for the glory of your great and worthy name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.